0: We have three readings this morning. The first is from 1 John chapter 4. The second is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And the third is Romans 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: All right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It's great to see you. One of the the things that we do here occasionally that we did this morning is we only have a few songs, two or three songs before the sermon, which gives us some time to sing more fully after the sermon. So we're going to have four songs after the sermon, and it's a way for us to to respond to God's word uh, through singing. Now, I don't know if you saw this uh, study that happened a couple years ago. There was an interesting group study where an engineer gathered groups of people, and then he, he placed them in, in groups uh, for the sake of a competition. And so uh, he put the teams around the table. On the table was 20 pieces of uncooked spaghetti, a yard of tape, a yard of string, and a marshmallow. And so the team was each team was supposed to try to build the, the biggest, tallest structure that they could. And the one rule was that the the marshmallow had to end up on top. And so one of the groups was a team of business students from Stanford and these other like big programs. There was a group of CEOs. There was a group of attorneys and a group of kindergartners. And so they were competing against each other. They actually did this trial, this competition, hundreds of times and in two different countries. And over all of these competitions, the business students averaged structures of 10 inches tall The attorneys averaged 15 inches, CEOs averaged 22 inches, and kindergartners averaged 29 inches. So the five-year-olds won the competition across the board almost every single time. It was remarkable. And so the people doing this study were trying to figure out what that was. And basically what they discovered was that most of the groups spent their time on what they called status management. So the, the individuals were trying to figure out their place in the group, like who's the leader going to be? What's my contribution to the group going to be? How can I say smart and intelligent things? How much like criticism can I give before I lose people's approval? And they were so focused on sort of the, the intergroup dynamics and, and their own role and how they were being perceived by others that they got very little done. Meanwhile, the kindergartners are just working like ants. They hardly spoke to one another. They had really no ego at all, but one of the the reports said that their strategy could be described as trying a bunch of stuff together. (laughs) So in the end, the kindergartners would, would laugh and celebrate and hug one another over their winning towers. So what the study concluded was that the worst possible thing for any group or team is competing for status. Meanwhile, the best possible thing was working without pride, being able to, to take risks, offering help without expecting something in return. And so I, I'm glad that, that ministers and seminary students were not included in this study. I don't think the marshmallow kit's off the table for us. But I, I thought of this study this week uh, because we're exploring the New Testament vision for healthy church community. What's true of deeply formed churches, and one of the most important dynamics in a healthy Jesus-following church is the quality of its relationships. So, in other words, the 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 quality, the 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 style of those relationships in the community—it's not secondary to the mission, but it it actually is the mission. How we treat one another in the church is central to God's mission into the in the world into our lives. And so, we're not just looking at at teamwork today or, or how people get together on the surface, but we're looking at, are, are we really putting the needs of others before ourselves? Are we trying to figure out where we stand in the community and our status in this place, or are, are we putting the mission of the group and the needs of others above our own desires? On the night before his death, Jesus told his disciples at the last supper, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So he's saying the way that we treat each other demonstrates something to the outside world. It says something true of God to those who don't know him. And the word that Jesus chose to use is love. Not just love for God, not love for, you know, the gospel or, or doctrine or a lot of other good things, but, but our love for one another in the church will be the thing that introduces God to people outside the church. And so today, what we're looking at is is love for one another as a mark of a deeply formed church. We're going to look at three things. What love is, why our love matters, and how to love each other well. And then there's a, a 3B. It's not a fourth point, just 3B. How do we become a loving person? So what love is, why our love matters, how to love each other well, and then the freebie. to become a loving person. All right, we'll start with what love is, and for this we look at 1 Corinthians 13. In this passage, Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails, and if you ask anyone on the streets or in our culture what love is, you'll probably get an answer that's related to desire or affection, uh, emotions that we feel towards somebody else. In other cultures, if you ask them what love is, they'll respond with something along the lines of family and, and community and, and doing something for the, the greater good of the whole And and in these two different types of cultures, which are primarily Western and Eastern cultures, we we see an element of truth. We sort of see half of the truth because love does involve affection and strong feelings, but it also involves a a commitment and and to, to putting the needs of others above your own, an element of sacrifice for the greater good. And so when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he's saying love is this. It's the closest thing we get to a real definition of love, And for a little bit of context, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he's writing to the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament. And the Corinthians are, are divided in who they're following. Their, their sin registers like way higher than all the other sin of the churches in the New Testament. They are by far the most dysfunctional, prideful. Uh, they have the most theological error. They have the most confusion. Like out of all the churches, the Corinthians are dead last. And yet, Paul opens his letter to them by saying, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. It's remarkable that despite their dysfunction and their confusion, he feels so much gratitude and affection for them. Although I too. two do tend to kind of read the end of that verse as like Paul saying, I'm so thankful that God has you to really demonstrate his grace. You know, it's like maybe a little bit backhanded, but he is genuinely like affectionate and grateful for them. And it's into this community's messiness, into their division, he writes, Here is what love is it's service, it's sacrifice. It doesn't boast or get angry, it's quick to forgive, it's trusting, it's hopeful. And he's saying, you may have a lot of great spiritual gifts. You may have a ton of faith. You may have a bold hope, but the thing that matters most, the greatest of these is love. And Paul is, according to one scholar, confronting us with love, with pure, true love. He's he's sort of hitting us over the head with what true love is in a way that shows us that we could not possibly live up to this perfect standard of love. Now, true love, according to the New Testament, is self-giving, affectionate commitment. It's it's self-giving or sacrificial, affectionate commitment. And if we're honest, this kind of self-giving love is basically impossible for us, or at least it's impossible to do fully because we have so much selfishness within us. So it's like Paul's saying, the greatest thing in all of creation, in all the world, is love, and you can't really do it. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm a pretty loving person. And I would say, you actually are. I mean, this is the most loving, the most beautiful, the most genuine and affectionate community I've ever been a part of it. It's not even close. You really are loving people. And yet, if we're being honest, I think we all have a standard of love that we want others to live up to, that we ourselves want to live up to, that we can't possibly do. We're constantly projecting our, our need for love onto others in a way that we can't love them in the same way. C.S. Lewis wrote a book on love. He wrote a lot and spoke a lot on love, but he said that so much of our love is just loving to be loved in return. He said a lot of what we call love is actually just hunger. There's, There's something we want and something we need when we think we're loving. I don't know if you've ever been in a position where, where somebody wants to spend time with you or somebody wants to, to do something great with you, but you're, you're not able to do it either because of the timing or because of the limits of your own energy and schedule. And so when you say, no, I, I can't do that with you, they they flip and they get upset and they say, well, I guess we're not really friends then. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it's it's disorienting and it, and it reveals that that's, that's not really love. That was a type of hunger. They were looking for you to fulfill something for them, some kind of void but that's that's not really true love. Now, I've done this so many times as I reflected on this this week. Sometimes it's small things, like I get annoyed if somebody doesn't text me back quick enough, even though most of you know I'm like notoriously bad at responding to texts and emails, like it's like a clinical, doctors are worried, (laughs) they're like, this is a problem, it may never go away. I get grumpy if somebody cancels on me, but I often have to rearrange my schedule and, and reschedule with other people. I feel hurt if somebody says, I I just can't really spend time with you in this season. And yet I've had to say that myself. I was thinking around the house, you know, we've got three boys and they're just hoodies and shoes everywhere. I'm like, guys, are we like, it looks like you're putting on a Goodwill or something here, like pick it up. And yet in every room of the house, I have a pair of shoes. I have a stack of like five books. And I'm like, well, that's just smart because you never know, you never know when you might need to put on a pair of shoes and read five books, that's that's just smart business. So it's like the standard that I hold other people to and get offended by if they don't reach it, I'm not even coming close to meeting that standard in myself. True, pure love is self-giving, affectionate commitment. Whether it's friendship, marriage, parenting, church relationships, true love has to be the overflow of contentment. It has to come from a place of abiding in Christ. Like distinctly Christian love has to come from a place of not necessarily needing something from others, although we do need one another, we need relationships, we need community. But because we're secure and rooted in Christ, we can love others for who they are and we can love them in a way that doesn't expect anything in return. That's true and distinct Christian love. And so the New Testament confronts us with this love. It gives us a beautiful picture and standard of true love. And the second thing is why this matters, why our love matters so much. And 1 John 4 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And he wraps it up by saying, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so our love matters first and foremost because it comes from God and it, it shows the world something true about God. It shows us something true about God. When we are loving one another in the church, we're demonstrating the very love of God. We were created from love and for love. We were created out of the overflow of the love that has eternally existed in God's own nature as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we were created for love. To to return that love to the Father, to be immersed in that love, and to love one another as well. There's a doctor and an author, Kurt Thompson. He writes, we come into this world looking for someone looking for us. It's so true. As babies, we come into the world looking for someone who's looking for us. We were created from love and for love. And John, who is called the apostle of love, he says the best possible example of love is not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Meaning he sent his son to pay the penalty of, of death for our sins, which we couldn't possibly bear. And so this reflects Paul's own definition and his emphasis that love is self-giving, affectionate commitment. The father gives up his own beloved son for the sake of us. He does so out of love. It says in verse 11, since God so loved us. But it's also that the son willingly went to the cross, willingly came into our broken world for us out of love. Now, verse 12 and the same John, 1 John 4 passage says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I remember reading this at one point and being confused by it, honestly, thinking it was borderline heretical. How could God's love be made complete? Like in what sense would God's love ever be incomplete? And, and what it is, is that John is saying that God's love is only incomplete in the sense that it's not fully visible. Because he, he just says, no one has ever seen God, but it's, it's made complete or it's made visible when we love one another in the church. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? Like it still almost sounds heretical, but it's not. That God's love needs to be displayed in the world. And the way that he's chosen to do that out of all the possible options was our love for one another in the church. So the design of the universe is that we as Christians in local congregations and communities can love one another and display and make complete something that's true about God. This is a profound calling on our lives. And so as Jesus said in the Last Supper, they will know you by your love. I want to suggest, especially in Western society, especially in a place like Columbia, Missouri, where a culture is, is predominantly secular, meaning it's, it's not very religious, but it, it sort of embodies a lot of different religions and draws off things from different places. And at the core of this secularism, there's a high view of tolerance, of empathy, of justice. And yet at the same time, the culture can't reach up to its own standards. Like we want tolerance, empathy, and justice, and yet we're not actually able to fully give one another what we want to see given to us. And so as the church, what we need to be able to do and what others want to see from us is loving, sacrificial, empathetic community. And not just out of our our, best efforts and our, our strength and our willpower, but as an overflow of the love for God. That's what's missing in the world is we can try to to work up because we're made in God's image and we have a lot of this in us. We can be empathetic. We can be gracious people, but there's always a point where it's just, it's going to end. We're not going to be able to reach our own standards. And yet when it's the love of God building up in us and overflowing for one another, it lasts far longer. It's far stronger. It's far more durable. And so in our culture, the greatest defense of the gospel or the greatest proclamation of the gospel is a community of love, a place where love and and truth are not opposites, where they don't even have to be balanced, but love, grace, and truth all flow together from who God is. Now, the third thing is how to love each other well. On a practical basis, what does this look like? And that's where we turn to Romans 12. Romans 12. Paul writes, love must be sincere, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. He's describing for us what love looks like, how we can love one another well. Once again, it reflects what we've already seen in Jesus and Paul and John, And Paul calls us to a very certain lifestyle. He's he's calling us to put others' needs above our own. He's saying, honor one another above yourselves. Share with people who are in need. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. He calls us to remain committed to one another. He says, be devoted, patient, and faithful. Don't give up on each other. He calls us to keep a shared mission together. One of the things I've found is that in trying to build a relationship, sometimes it's, it's more difficult to build a friendship when you're just like sitting together over coffee. One of the best things we can do is, is to do something together as friends or do something together to build relationship, whether it's a, a shared interest or, or something that, that we're, we're working on together or some kind of, some kind of trip, something with a higher purpose. That's actually the place where relationships begin to thrive. And so how much more so in the church when we have a clear and compelling mission from God, practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of all things. This shared mission helps us to love one another. Paul also calls us to make space. He says, practice hospitality, make space for those on the outside, those on the fringes of your community, those on the the fringes or new people to the church. It could even be people outside the church. Hospitality is distinctly Christian because it makes space for outsiders. Paul's calling us to make space in our schedules, make space in our lives, make space in our our small groups, make space in the, you know, the chairs around you Be, be welcoming and inviting, make space for one another. Now at the celebration dinner this past week, I know most of you were there. A few of you missed it. But we invited you to share evidences of, of grace, sort of these, these examples of how you see God working in you in, in the church through one another. And someone spoke of how their community group has welcomed them in and embraced them even though they're in a different season of life. We heard of group leaders who have given so much of their time and energy for others. We heard of how meaningful it was to have a close friend invite them to the church and encourage them to keep coming. We heard of how in a time of need, others came together and supported them practically. And there are so many examples of of true and self-giving love in this church. One of the things we often see when people feel loved is that somebody has has taken the initiative with them. One of the things that I think we often can miss in community is that, that we want others to take initiative with us, but often true community is formed as we take initiative with each other. I think it would be accurate to say, as God has taken initiative with us, as Jesus has taken the initiative with us, so we should take initiative with one another. Keep loving one another. Keep serving each other. Keep making room for the outsider. We live in a a day and an age and in a city where so many people are, are far from their families, where they're trying to find a sense of identity and purpose. Even believers are struggling with loneliness We can send a a text. We can invite them to dinner. We can take the initiative. And to do so with the love of God as our motivation. Now, as I said, there's a 3B to this message. You can just call it point four if that's easier. I get it. Your Mother's Day gift is four points. We discover our own limitations so quickly in community. Like when we try to love one another, we're, we're confronted with our own impatience. And so the last thing is how do we become a loving person? One of the things I love about 1 Corinthians 13 is that Paul doesn't just give us a checklist. He doesn't say do this and do that, but rather he says, here's what love is. It's, it's this and it's that. And he's describing this beautiful picture of love. The question is, how did he, how did he come up with that? What is that list of love really reflecting? Well, it's, it's just reflecting the person of Jesus. Really, you could replace the word love with Jesus and the whole thing would would read beautifully. Jesus is love. God is love and Jesus is God wrapped in human flesh. And so Jesus is the very core, the very essence of love having come down into our world. And so for us to become a loving person, we have to come face to face with this Jesus. We have to know this one who came from heaven out of love for us, the one who looked on the lost and loved them, the one who reached out to take the hand of the leper, the one who sat down with the unclean and the rejected and the marginalized and the overlooked, the one who called ordinary people to follow him and join his life, the one who ate with others, walked with them, prayed with them, encouraged them, challenged them, The one who in John 13, it says that having loved them, he loved them all the way to the end. He gave of his very own life, as 1 John says, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is true love. The only way to become a loving person is to come face to face, to be confronted by the source of love. And this isn't a one-time thing, but rather we abide in his love. We remain in his love. We are vitally connected to him as he is the vine and we are the branches. We need his love, his life, his energy and nutrients flowing through to us. So the question is, do you really know that love? Are you living beloved by God? Are you living immersed in the reality of God's love for you? But as it says, there's one vine and many branches. And so if the love of God is coming to us as an individual branch, that means it's going to everyone and we also are going to be loving to one another. Not just projecting our our needs onto one another or seeking each other's approval, but genuinely caring for one another. Asking, how are you doing really? Have I told you how much you mean to me? Love is self-giving, affectionate commitment. True love comes from the Father. It's perfectly embodied in his Son. And once you meet this Jesus, once you abide in this love, you can't help but for this Christ-like, self-giving, affectionate, committed love to come pouring out of you and into the lives of one another. Let's pray.